This is Binghamton Now on News Radio 1290, WNBF Binghamton, and WNBF.com. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290, WNBF. This is News Radio 1290, WNBF News. Increasing clouds today, high near 64. Mostly cloudy tonight, low around 53. Mostly cloudy Friday with a chance of showers, high near 63. Around 12.39 p.m. Wednesday, Endicott Police received the report of a robbery at Visions Federal Credit Union. Endicott Police were on the scene within two minutes, but the suspect had already fled on foot. The investigation revealed that no proceeds were obtained during the attempted robbery and no weapon was displayed. Investigation into the matter led to the arrest of Rashid Crawford of Binghamton for attempted robbery in the third degree, a Class E felony. Crawford was processed at the Endicott Police Department and transported to the Broome County Centralized Arraignment Part to be held pending arraignment. The investigation is continuing and anyone with information is asked to call the Endicott Police Department Detective Division. Two residential buildings may be shut down by the city of Binghamton because of criminal activity and disturbances. The owners of houses at 3 and 5 Sturgis Street have been ordered to take action to address the problems associated with the properties. According to Mayor Jared Cram, Isaac Anzarut, Alan Anzarut and Craig Spencer have been sent lockdown letters indicated the properties have been a public nuisance. Graham said police were called to 3 Sturgis Street in September for a report of a man with an AK-47 assault rifle. A man was charged with weapons, weapons possession after police found a rifle and two loaded magazines when they searched the two-family house. A man was shot in the chest last February at the single-family residence at 5 Sturgis Street. A Binghamton man was charged with attempted murder in that incident. The mayor said the owners of the properties will have 10 days to meet with city officials to discuss the trouble that's occurred. If the owners don't submit corrective action plans, the city could go to court to obtain an order to lock down the properties for up to one year. The Binghamton Planning Commission has authorized the conversion of a downtown office tower into a residential complex. Developer James Slocum had sought a special use permit for the proposed project at the Center Plaza building at Shenango and Henry Streets. The plan approved by the commission would permit 63 apartments with a total of 87 bedrooms to be established in the upper portion of the eight-story office building. The project calls for seven more dwelling units and seven more bedrooms than what was outlined by Slocum at a September planning commission meeting. Slocum had sought permission to include a gym in the basement of the building, but that use is not allowed under city regulations. Although the building's interior will be reconfigured for the planned apartments, the developer has said the exterior of the structure won't be changed. Slocum, who acquired the property over the summer, told WNBF News on Wednesday that he is now working to finalize plans for the project. Pennsylvania State Police in Tawanda reported a motor vehicle crash on Springfield Road in Springfield Township, Bradford County. Upon arriving at the scene, troopers observed a Subaru Outback had been traveling east on Springfield Road when the operator failed to negotiate a left-hand curve. The vehicle traveled off the roadway and struck a tree. 
The operator of the vehicle, Shirley Mancuso Zatel, was pronounced deceased at the scene by the Bradford County Coroner's Office. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul arrived in Israel for a trip intended to show support for the country during its war with Hamas. The Democratic governor landed around 5.40 p.m. Wednesday with a group of state police officers and top aides. She later met with victims of the Hamas attack and families of hostages, as well as as volunteers and staff at a food pantry before heading to Jerusalem to stay overnight. Hoku said a trip was meant to be a gesture of solidarity and support for Israel. The war that began on October 7th has become the deadliest of five Gaza wars for both sides. And Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro's office says he'll sign budget-related legislation to boost Medicaid subsidies for hospitals and ambulance services, provisions struck in a wider, months-long stalemate. The bill passed the House on Wednesday by a vote of 199 to 4 and heads to Shapiro's desk. Under the bill, lawmakers reauthorized an assessment on hospitals that is expected to draw down roughly $1.4 billion in matching federal Medicaid dollars this year. It then redistributes the money to favor hospitals that treat higher proportions of Medicaid enrollees. Meanwhile, the bill boosts Medicaid reimbursements for ambulance services by a projected $126 million a year in federal and state aid. The reimbursement includes ground and air transportation. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290, WNBF. Bob Joseph, this is Binghamton Now, Thursday, October 19th, 2023. Welcome to the program. Coming up, we'll be taking your phone calls about local issues and other matters of interest. It's a big, exciting world out there, so we will have plenty to talk about between now and noon on your live local talk program. It's Binghamton Now. On News Radio, WNBF, 92.1 FM, 1290 AM, and streaming at WNBF.com. First, we welcome back to the studio Democratic candidate for Broome County District Attorney, Matthew Ryan. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I am well. Thank you. Looks like it's going to be a beautiful day out there. It will be. It will be. Thank you for joining us. We had the Republican candidate, Paul Battisti, in the studio 24 hours ago. And so I think it's good as we get very close to the start of early voting here in Broome County. Early voting will begin just over a week from now, and then Election Day will be November 7th, so I think it's good for the voters to be able to hear from both candidates. 
Yeah, I think it's very important and uh, it begs the question, why no debates uh, or at least discussions, as you call them? It uh, could happen. It well, still could happen. It could happen, but yeah. it doesn't look like it's going to happen. I listened uh, carefully to uh, Mr. Batiste's uh, presentation yesterday and uh, seems to be making every kind of excuse to uh, avoid any kind of debate. And I think it's a real disservice to... Uh, the Broome County residents. This is the most important job in the criminal justice system, and I think they deserve to see us side by side and, and making uh, making our case for why we should be the next uh, district attorney. Tell me what's occurred with your campaign for district attorney since your last visit to WNBF, which was just over a month ago. Right. We, um, we've got a tremendous amount of uh, groundswell of support. We got a lot of volunteers. We've had uh, several uh, fundraisers. I will tell you one thing. It's much harder to raise money for a district attorney race than it is mayor's race. And um, I know Mr. Batisti, based on what I see, has a lot more monetary resources than we do. But I think we have uh, a lot of people who are very interested in making sure that um, the agenda that I'm proposing uh, uh, is the one that runs the DA's office for the next four years. So with the challenges you face at raising money, and as they say, money is is crucial to any campaign, whether it's a local, state, or, or national campaign. So with that challenge that you face, does that mean you view yourself as the underdog in this race? Oh, certainly. Any Democrat running head-to-head with uh, a Republican in this county, especially in an off-year election, is the underdog. But uh, our ideas are not the underdog, and I more and more people we talk to, and we can we're good at getting out and talking to people. Um, I think that they understand that the primary traditional role of the DA's office is to prosecute crime, and certainly that's the main function of the DA's office. But all across this country, people and and communities are saying. We need to do better. If we're going to really tackle crime, if we're going to if we're going to lower crime rates, we have to do everything and use every toolbox, every tool in the toolbox, to make sure that we can prevent crime as much as possible. I would say that every uh, one thing that's really obvious, if you go back and listen to Mr. Battisti, his everything he does and talks about is reactive, not one time has he ever talked about preventing crime it's always about what do we do with drug users uh, and I, I agree with on him on many of the things that are uh, being done now that we need to double down on those efforts but I want to do things that prevent people from getting involved in the first place and I think uh, we're only doing half our job if that's not what we do all across the country like I said and communities as close as Syracuse, Ithaca, they're doing uh, different things to make sure that prevention is part of the equation. Here's a question I asked Mr. Batiste at this time yesterday. How do you characterize crime in Broome County right now, the way things are at the moment compared to, say, 10, 20, 50 years ago? Well, as you pointed out yesterday, uh, everybody tries to look. If you're running for a district attorney, mo- the the usual tact is scare people. Try to scare people in that you're going to be make Broome County the safest it can be. And so, when you talk about, and you brought up good points because I've I've been around a lot longer than Mr. Batisti, and I've seen the, the same kinds of crimes are being committed. And by the way, what what how much crime? 
What do you think the highest crime category is in Broome County if, for the Broome County's uh, office? What, what what are the most crimes charged in Broome County and when they, that they prosecute? You tell me. 88% are theft crimes. I was going to say larcenies. Right. So, you know, you got to think that you really you need to be a data-driven office and you need to come up with solutions that will find a way to deal with that kind of crime uh, and do it efficiently so that the DA's office can really concentrate on the violent crime and the more serious crime to um, that's what really makes our community safer. We all know that uh, theft crimes are often related to poverty and drug abuse, people stealing to support their habit or, or stealing because they're poor. So systemic um, things that I talk about during my campaign and, th- and things that we can do that many other communities are doing. There's so many people and so many organizations in this community that want to help people who are not as fortunate as some of us. And we need to be a department that helps all those organizations. That's why I've talked about getting, um, having a, a grant writer and a liaison to the community. If you're not making close relationships with the people who, where most of the crime comes from, the communities where most, a lot of the crime comes from, you're never going to change the equation. And you're, and when you convince those young people, like when I had gang prevention in the youth bureau, which ended the first day I left office, you can see the spike in crime since then. You can see the spike in young people, violent crime since then. We need to capture those young people. And we're not such a big city that we can't capture every one of them, make sure, uh, identify every one of them, and make sure that they have somebody showing them that they care about them. These days, many of the crime stories around the country, including some here, and and also, to be fair, tending to be in larger cities, deal around larcenies. And we see sometimes videos that are released of uh, not just one or two people, but uh, many people sometimes invading stores. So there's retail theft. And we also know several stores, say, here in Binghamton, CVS stores, at least three stores have, have closed in Binghamton, one in Johnson City, although corporate insists it has nothing to do with shoplifting and larceny. Well, the employees have told me in each of those stores that was one of the factors. And sometimes people assert that uh, those who are accused of theft, whether it's on a small scale or a larger scale at stores, are not being adequately prosecuted. Well, first of all, um, again, it's tied to poverty. It's tied to drug abuse. So we have to deal with those things, which I think will, if we do them properly and if we um, really put our resources into those kinds of programs and working with all our government partners to do that, that will help lower the, um, the, the kinds of theft that you see. I will say that you know, there have been some instances, uh, at CVS and some, what you would say is blatant people going in and stealing things off the shelves. It's not and there was a video released, right. I think, a couple of years ago in Binghamton right. at a Walgreens store where, right. I don't know if it was three right. or four people, were stealing items and then putting them in, in bags and, right. and making off. Well, like you said, it was a couple of years ago in one video. This is much more rampant in, in bigger areas. Thank God it's not here, but it is. There are some, I mean, I've talked to uh, people that work on this at the DA's office. 
finally, you know, when you think about all the money that Walmart makes, they finally, I found out in asking a lot of questions that there's a lot of cameras out there, but not all of them work because they're expensive to keep running, like surveillance cameras to capture crime and stuff like that. Well, they finally convinced the people at the, the vest, uh, that, uh, is it the Town, town Square Mall and that's the big, that's where big, the where Walmart the, superstore yeah, is. yeah where the superstore used to be to put up a big camera that they maintain and pay for which uh, makes sense because they're the ones that make all the money off uh, people and they can help support um, uh, our criminal justice uh, system by doing things like that and let's face it if if all, if eighty eight percent most of it actually comes from big stores like big box stores like Walmart um, why shouldn't they put more money and resources into helping us um, come up with a system that kind of takes that a little less off so many DAs spend so much of their time in local courts but once people are caught and they're charged with arsony grand larceny and ultimately it comes to the point of prosecuting do they need to be dealt with more harshly well we have to look at each each case individually and see what that person's up. If they're clearly a career criminal that's doing this all the time and it's not related to any circumstances and it's just a way to make money and steal blatantly, yes, they have to be dealt with um, um, very zealously. But, you know, you have to, that's the role of the DAs, not to destroy, if you're, if you're going to put a Somebody that's all they care about is doing is committing crime, and 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 it's really not about uh, any need they have. That's one thing, but the other thing is try to for those that are caught in a lower level of what you would look at as a lower level of criminal activity. Those are the ones you want to divert. You don't want those people getting records for something like that. You want to say, hey, we got an opportunity for you. We have to have more things like get the unions involved, which we already have. They said they would. If you find a young man or young woman who you say, look, you you look like you might be able to or you have some interest in learning a trade, you can get a, a union apprenticeship right now and forget about this, uh, you know, poverty you're living in and live a, and, and learn a skill that will follow you for the rest of your life. And, by the way, we'll still be able to, if you want to maybe not do that for your whole life, once you get going, we, we can provide through SUNY Broom education courses for you to try different things. Many people have many different careers in their lives now, and we, we have to give those same opportunities to those people who think they have none. Our guest in the studio is former Binghamton Mayor Matthew Ryan, who's running as the Democratic candidate for Broom County District Attorney. Brought this up yesterday with... Republican candidate Paul Battisti about some of the comments were made a few days ago by the Albany County District Attorney David Soares regarding the raise the age uh, legislation that uh, was passed in Albany and he suggested that uh, in respect to um, a murder case involving I believe a a 17 year old defendant that somehow lawmakers were complicit he called it legislative malpractice because they had not moved to change the raise the age provisions it's interesting because that man ran on a, a kind of a reform agenda when he first got elected and for him to say that is that shows how far he's gone off track if you get arrested for murder as a 16, 17-year-old, 
which is where the age went from from that, up to 18, you still can get charged with second-degree murder, which carries a sentence of 15 to 25 years. You serve, if you're from 16 to 18, if you got went to jail, you're in a different facility, but once you get 18, you're then you go to a adult facility. So to say, I mean, that, that seems to be saying, and what Mr. Batiste, my opponent's response was, is, is really ridiculous because it's part of the fear-mongering that people do that when they want to get elected to a DA's office, they don't talk about real data-driven stuff or real facts. If you commit, commit a murder at 16 or 17, you are subject to 15 to 25 years in prison. And the other issues, don't forget, it's not just about uh, the age, uh, raise the age was about, we had people, two people in the Broome County Jail that's because they didn't have, they didn't feel like these kids were safe. They had to serve, they were 16 and 17 years old. They served um, almost a half a year in solitary confinement in our jail, in our Broome County Jail. Do you think that's right for 16 and 17 year olds to be in solitary confinement for their own safety because they're being treated as adults? Now they have separate facilities for these people. And because we know about anybody that studies you know, crime problems knows that young people have different, uh, haven't, their brain hasn't even fully developed by their, the time they're that age. So we have to treat them differently and not say they're a throwaway, um, person who, um, made, uh, uh, maybe a very bad mistake, but they should be dealt with, uh, somewhat differently, but not, certainly not these, the notion that, a murderer is out on the street because they are 16 or 17. That's just hogwash. At times over the last few decades, some have suggested that law enforcement could be more effective in Broome County and crime addressed uh, better with ultimately a single police agency. And there's been uh, some discussion just in, in recent weeks because of an initiative that uh, Broome County Sheriff Fred Akshar uh, implemented over the summer in the village of Endicott. And Mayor Linda Jackson has said, well, she thinks he ultimately wants to take over police service in the village. And, and some have speculated ultimately he would like to have a, a single law enforcement agency for the county. He, on this program, has, has indicated that's not his plan. What are your thoughts? Would having a single, a unified police agency in Broome County that ultimately would take over for the um, unique services that are provided by, say, police agencies in Binghamton, Johnson City, Endicott, Vestal, Port Dickinson, and so on. Is that something that should be considered or at least studied at some point? When I was mayor, that whole process played out with Pat Brennan when he was uh, county executive for a while, and we took a very close look at it. I'm the only mayor that actually got we our chief... uh, Joe Sikuski was, we, we saved a lot of money for the city of Binghamton by having him, him and a couple other, uh, people from the Binghamton Police Department be the head of the Johnson City Police Department. They didn't like it. They don't, everybody's provincial in this area. Uh, and I'm not gonna, you know, if something's not gonna happen because voters don't want it to happen, it's not gonna happen. So we have to deal with the reality of, uh, working in conjunction with each other trying to get everybody on the same page of preventing crime in the first place, trying to, uh, you know, Mr. My opponent always says, uh, you know, I don't have any support of law enforcement. Well, when I was mayor, uh, 
they didn't support me. And police, for whatever reason, rarely support Democratic candidates. I, I would suggest that we're the ones that care about their safety. With um, I was mayor against illegal guns. I was not afraid to say that, even though it probably would lose me some votes. Most people now have come around to the fact we don't want illegal guns. We don't want ghost guns out there. Those are the things that will protect police. When I was mayor, um, at first they were, you know, because I was former public defender, they were a, a little reticent about me. And But every one of them will tell you who back from the old time that I was honest. I told them the truth. We shared all our books with them. And they, uh, you know, Mr. my opponent said the other day that I cut police it's true I cut police, but we had a commission on personnel costs that looked at it and said, why do we have to have per capita so many more police and firemen? Because I cut every department 10% because we were broke. And that's the kind of, uh, and, and so it wasn't against the police. In fact, and he said, I never gave any of that tax increases back. That's not true. My last year, go look at the budget. Joe Sikuski asked me for three positions, one for each shift, made the case for it, and I put him in my last year. So this was, and, but we were, even after we cut the police, we were per capita tied for number one in upstate New York with per capita police. With their, or speaking, by the way, with the uh, Democratic candidate for Broome County District Attorney Matthew Ryan, would there be any specific problems that could ensue if Mr. Batiste becomes district attorney because he's, uh, a well-known defense attorney. In fact, I believe coming up on Monday, he's going to be uh, representing a party in a very high-profile case that's been handled by the DA's office for the last well, almost two years or so. So with uh, cases that already have been um, addressed by the DA's office and haven't been finalized or, or things where Paul Batiste's been involved as a defense attorney, what would that mean going forward if he becomes the district attorney in January? Yeah, one of the current district attorneys I talked to told me that their estimate is that it will cost the county up to at least a million dollars more to have Mr. Batiste as the district attorney because of all the conflicts he had. Most of my cases... So what would happen in those cases? Those cases, a special prosecutor at $200 an hour is... Um, that's what it's the prosecu special prosecutor rate is. And at $200 an hour, uh, that can rack up really quickly. And every case that he's is handling currently or has handled previously, and any witnesses from those cases, if they come to his office to be prosecuted, they cannot... He cannot um, do it. His office will not be able to do it. So that's a huge uh, burden on the taxpayers. And I only have a few a few cases. I've been doing pro bono work, and I was very cognizant of that. I haven't taken any new cases because when I started to run for uh, DA, I realized what that could cost the taxpayers. If you had one question to ask Paul Battisti at this point, what would it be? Um. Why do so many people unprovoked say to me uh, that they think your alliance with the police and all this alliance you have with the police is kind of an unholy alliance? This is Democrats and Republicans. They all, so many people feel that that um, this alliance that you have is doesn't won't allow you to be um, the independent 
prosecutor you have to be. The most important part of the criminal justice system is having those, especially those people whose communities are more policed than others, trust the system. And if you are out there having cigars and fist pumping with the sheriff and the and all the police and they're all behind you, uh, look, I if I'm that, that just sends the wrong message. And you, if you're Look, we all have to work with the police. I agree with my opponent on that. And I've proven that I can work with the police. I did it for eight years. I was the commissioner of public safety. Did you ever hear one story about how they, uh, that, uh, that they didn't like me? In fact, you know, he also talked about the contract. Five years, it took five years to give them a contract. Well, they got the contract they finally wanted that they knew that, that we worked together, that the city could afford. And, uh, Look, they all were making more money than I was when I was a mayor. So, Matthew Ryan, the Democratic candidate for Broome County District Attorney. I, th- I thank you for the opportunity. Will you and, come back to the studio before Election Day? Well, look, I think that I will come back. And not only he, always, that's another thing my opponent said yesterday. He wasn't sure he could make it back. I think we deserve, uh, like I said, a side-by-side thing. And if he won't come back, I think you should let me come back and answer questions from the public. Uh, as you a, would take questions from the public? Absolutely. Live? Live. Stay tuned. Okay, thank you. And by the way, we have they have a lot of big signs, but we have big buttons. And I want you to have one for... Oh, I can't take that. No, Antifa's is part of your collection. It's not, I know you're not endorsing anybody. All right. But uh, don't you have a political button collection like all of... Yeah, I set aside political buttons. Mostly <laughs> mostly presidential, some, <laughs> some gubernatorial. But I've been collecting buttons since I was a kid. Uh, yeah, me too. One of my, my favorite I, I, I collection. Figured, I figured you would. Some. One of my favorite collections goes back, I believe, 1972, when I was really getting interested in politics. And my aunt gave me. They're complete. That would be uh, George McGovern. And Richard Milhouse Nixon. Right. And my aunt gave me this campaign folder because she was working with local Republicans for the re-election of President Nixon. So I have all this literature from 1972 with uh, the talking points and bumper stickers, mm-hmm. re-elect President Nixon, and a couple of uh, Nixon campaign buttons, including one about the size, I would say, of a quarter that says Nixon now. <laughs> and it's one of my most prized possessions, and it goes back, I guess, 51 years. Right. Hard to believe. That is hard to believe. Anyway, thank you for coming in. Again, as I um, mentioned on the program yesterday with Mr. Batista, he's welcome to come back both for uh, another one-on-one conversation, if that's his preference, or, of course, we'll um, make it possible, based on his schedule, to have him back in here and and have a a conversation with you as well. I must say I'm disappointed because... I, you know, because of the lack of uh, uh, coverage by newspapers these days, they are going to do a little profile of each of us, I guess, ask us a couple questions. But you're, you're from the day when newspapers really scrutinized candidates and called them out on uh, maybe the untruths they would tell and all those kinds of things. If we're not side by side and he won't do that, then I think you should let me come in, like I said, and not let him come in. It should be... You provide an opportunity for one hour, uh, 40 or 40, 40, 45 minutes, whatever it is, for us to come in. And whoever comes, shows up, 
that's, uh, of course, they need to give you a little head time to make sure you're prepared. Uh, if they don't tell you 10 days before that date, then the other person, if they want to come in, which would be me, just to come in and have an hour where I, where I would take uh, calls from the public. I like the idea of people, just average people, asking questions instead yeah, of the so host. Do I. I thought, you know I've always been in favor of that and did it almost every week when I was mayor with you. I remember that. Those were those were good days, those when, were the days when, <laughs> when people had the ability to ask questions directly to a, a mayor. Right. All right, Matthew Ryan, thank you. And as I tell our listeners every day, stay tuned to Binghamton Now. From the Galt Auto Studios, this is WNBF News Radio AM 1290. Also available at 92.1 FM. Shop Toyota, Chevy, BMW, and pre owned at GaltAuto.com. News Radio 940 WNBF. Bob Joseph Binghamton now, 607-772-1290. All are welcome to participate in our broadcast. We're here for you Monday through Friday from 9 to noon. And you don't have to be from Binghamton to participate on Binghamton Now. Forecast today, partly sunny, high 64. Tonight, mostly cloudy, low 53. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a chance of afternoon showers, high 63. Right now, it's 45 in downtown Binghamton. That's 7 Celsius at WNBF. 941. Let's go to the phones. Hi, you're on the air. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? Good morning, no, sir. It's uh, Dave from Vestal. Bob, I got to tell you, you know, I listen closely and intently. I always do to the ex-mayor. And he comes across, Bob, as, you know, I think he's applying for the wrong job. He should be a social worker. We need a DA that will prosecute according to the crimes they committed, not whether they're poor or not or how much money they have. He he's a he's a prosecutor, Bob, not a social worker. He needs to get in in that field because you can't you can't mix the two. You can't. You know what I'm saying, Bob? I, I, evident he's got a big heart and he feels sorry for the people who are poor. Fine, but when they commit crimes, and especially if they're violent crimes. He's going to go soft on the ones that steal. That's obvious. He's telling us that right now. If they're poor, I'm going to go easy on them. That's not right, Bob. (laughs) Do you agree or disagree with me? I'll leave it to the listeners. Appreciate your call. Yeah, the listeners will weigh in. Uh, what, What do you think? You've now heard... 
uh, Matthew Ryan, the Democratic candidate for district attorney. He was just on. And 24 hours ago, you heard from Paul Battisti, the Republican candidate. So, you've heard their positions, and they responded in uh, many cases to some of the same questions, very similar questions. So, you have now uh, an ability to compare and contrast. What are your thoughts? 607-772-1290. Bob Joseph live on WNBF. Six zero seven 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 two twelve ninety. That's the number if you'd like to talk right now on WNBF. New York Governor Kathy Hochul met today with Benjamin Netanyahu. And members of his administration looking at a tweet sent by Governor Hochul's account in the last few minutes. In the tweet, the governor says, We discussed the urgent need to bring everyone home safely as 203 hostages, including New Yorkers, remain captives of Hamas. She said, uh, Hamas. She said that she emphasized New Yorkers' concern for all who are in pain following this terrible attack. So that is the latest from Governor Hochul. Uh, As far as uh, the latest from President Joe Biden, he um, has completed his trip to Israel and is planning a major speech of the nation. That'll be coming up tonight at 8 o'clock. As far as some of the uh, thoughts from uh, the president, here is uh, a bit of what Joe Biden said as he was returning from the Middle East. He spoke with reporters aboard airport, aboard Air Force One said while Israel has been victimized in the attacks from Hamas, Israeli leaders were open to discussions about getting aid into Gaza. The truth is that if they have an opportunity to relieve the suffering of people who have nowhere to go, um, they're going to be, it's what they should do. So that was President Biden speaking aboard Air Force One after his uh, brief visit into the war zone. It's 949 at News Radio WNBF on the air at 92.1 FM and 1290 AM streaming at WNBF.com. Fifty-two at WNBF. 
People gathering in Johnson City today for a special ceremony outside the Senior Center. At the site of Johnson Field, where the triplets played baseball for 55 years, of course, DOT put that to an end by tearing down the stadium after the 1968 season. Final triplets game in Johnson City was August 30th, 1968. They um, didn't have such a big crowd during the final season. People were, I think, losing interest and probably uh, also very, very unhappy because triplets lost their uh, stadium, which by then was in pretty bad shape. Stadium, ballpark. When the place opened on May 6, 1913, they say about 7,000 people showed up for the first game. So former Yankee stars like Whitey Ford, Thurman Munson played there in Johnson City. And, uh, of course, Thurman Munson died in a a plane crash, sadly. And now his uh, widow is due to be in Johnson City and uh, son also for uh, a ceremony at the site of the old Johnson Field. That uh, ceremony will be coming up shortly. I can't be there. I can't be there. The uh, ceremony is going on without me, but that doesn't mean I can't talk about the triplets and minor league baseball, and I will be doing that coming up in just a few minutes. A person will join us, a minor league broadcaster uh, from Texas, Tim Haggerty, will uh, join us. He's written a couple of baseball books and baseball history articles. And although he hasn't been in Binghamton, he is familiar with uh, some of the things that have happened in Binghamton baseball, from the bingos to the triplets to the B-Mets to the Rumble Ponies. And um, he'll be talking about his book called Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from minor league baseball, and that will be our topic of discussion with Tim Haggerty coming up in about 15 minutes here on WNBF. WNBF with Bob Joseph. Hi, you're on the air. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? Hello? This is an important call from local. Sure, it's an important call. Okay. That was a very important call. Here's an interesting story. On our website, WNBF.com, we have uh, some pictures and some more details about a multi-million dollar uh, office building conversion project that will be getting underway probably in just a few weeks. The uh, developer had sought a special use permit for the project. So uh, a big downtown Binghamton 
office building that's been around for over half a century will be converted. The upper floors will be converted to 63 apartments and a total of 87 bedrooms. And the work could begin very soon. So if you want details about that and some other local news, take a look at WNBF.com. I'm Bob Joseph. Thursday morning, it's 10 o'clock on WNBF. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290 WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF News. Increasing clouds today, high near 64. Mostly cloudy tonight, low around 53. Mostly cloudy Friday with a chance of showers, high near 63. Around 12.39 p.m. Wednesday, Endicott Police received the report of a robbery at Vision's Federal Credit Union. Endicott Police were on the scene within two minutes, but the suspect had already fled on foot. The investigation revealed that no proceeds were obtained during the attempted robbery and no weapon was displayed. Investigation into the matter led to the arrest of Rashid Crawford of Binghamton for attempted robbery in the third degree, a Class E felony. Crawford was processed at the Endicott Police Department and transported to the Broome County Centralized Arraignment Part to be held pending arraignment. The investigation is continuing and anyone with information is asked to call the Endicott Police Department Detective Division. Two residential buildings may be shut down by the city of Binghamton because of criminal activity and disturbances. The owners of houses at 3 and 5 Sturgis Street have been ordered to take action to address the problems associated with the properties. According to Mayor Jared Cram, Isaac Anzarut, Alan Anzarut and Craig Spencer have been sent lockdown letters indicated the properties have been a public nuisance. Graham said police were called to 3 Sturgis Street in September for a report of a man with an AK-47 assault rifle. A man was charged with weapons, weapons possession after police found a rifle and two loaded magazines when they searched the two-family house. A man was shot in the chest last February at the single-family residence at 5 Sturgis Street. A Binghamton man was charged with attempted murder in that incident. The mayor said the owners of the properties will have 10 days to meet with city officials to discuss the trouble that's occurred. If the owners don't submit corrective action plans, the city could go to court to obtain an order to lock down the properties for up to one year. The Binghamton Planning Commission has authorized the conversion of a downtown office tower into a residential complex. Developer James Slocum had sought a special use permit for the proposed project at the Center Plaza building at Shenango and Henry Streets. The plan approved by the commission would permit 63 apartments with a total of 87 bedrooms to be established in the upper portion of the eight-story office building. The project calls for seven more dwelling units and seven more bedrooms than what was outlined by Slocum at a September planning commission meeting. Slocum had sought permission to include a gym in the basement of the building, but that use is not allowed under city regulations. Although the building's interior will be reconfigured for the planned apartments, the developer has said the exterior of the structure won't be changed. Slocum, who acquired the property over the summer, told WNBF News on Wednesday that he is now working to finalize plans for the project. Pennsylvania State Police in Tawanda reported a motor vehicle crash on Springfield Road in Springfield Township, Bradford County. A 
Upon arriving at the scene, troopers observed a Subaru Outback had been traveling east on Springfield Road when the operator failed to negotiate a left-hand curve. The vehicle traveled off the roadway and struck a tree. The operator of the vehicle, Shirley Mancuso Zatel, was pronounced deceased at the scene by the Bradford County Coroner's Office. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul arrived in Israel for a trip intended to show support for the country during its war with Hamas. The Democratic governor landed around 5.40 p.m. Wednesday with a group of state police officers and top aides. She later met with victims of the Hamas attack and families of hostages, as well as volunteers and staff at a food pantry before heading to Jerusalem to stay overnight. Hoku said her trip was meant to be a gesture of solidarity and support for Israel. The war that began on October 7th has become the deadliest of five Gaza wars for both sides. And Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro's office says he'll sign budget-related legislation to boost Medicaid subsidies for hospitals and ambulance services, provisions struck in a wider months-long stalemate. The bill passed the House on Wednesday by a vote of 199 to 4 and heads to Shapiro's desk. Under the bill, lawmakers reauthorized an assessment on hospitals that is expected to draw down roughly $1.4 billion in matching federal Medicaid dollars this year. It then redistributes the money to favor hospitals that treat higher proportions of Medicaid enrollees. Meanwhile, the bill boosts Medicaid reimbursements for ambulance services by a projected $126 million a year in federal and state aid. The reimbursement includes ground and air transportation. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290, WNBF. Bob Joseph, you're listening to Binghamton Now on a Thursday morning on WNBF. The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. Man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Talking baseball here at WNBF. We're joined now by Tim Haggerty, who is in El Paso, Texas, minor league baseball broadcaster. And we're going to talk about some of the things, some funny and maybe occasionally uh, incredible things that happened over the years in minor league baseball, including some things that happened here in Binghamton over the decades. Tim Haggerty, welcome to WNBF. Thank you, Bob. And I'm so glad you can join us. If I wasn't here in the studio at the moment, I would be in Johnson City, just a few miles to the west of here. They're having uh, a ceremony with uh, Thurman Munson's widow and uh, son, and they're, it's uh, 
right now outside uh, a little senior center. It's not really a little senior center. The senior center has been there for 40 years. Before the senior center was built, Johnson Field was at that site, and the Binghamton Triplets played baseball there for 55 years. Final game happened in late August 1968. Shortly after that, Johnson Field was torn down to make way for the Southern Tier Expressway. So people are sharing their memories today. Um, There's going to be a, a special plaque on the ground where Home Plate was located. And also a historical marker is being unveiled at this hour to uh, commemorate all the baseball history that happened there. Tell me a bit about uh, your life, your love of baseball, how you got into broadcasting minor league games. I think like a lot of baseball fans, it hooked me at a young age. I grew up in the Boston area and was captivated the first time I ever walked into Fenway Park. So as a kid, I always loved playing baseball. Used to devour the Boston Globe and the uh, the box scores. I was the type of kid, Bob, that even though I grew up near Boston, if you asked me to name five Kansas City Royals or Cincinnati Reds, I could do it. I, I just loved the game. And my high school in Massachusetts had a broadcast class that allowed us to broadcast games. So I was fortunate. I was broadcasting games when I was 17 years old and was able to target a college, Vermont State University, that had a really specific broadcast program and was off and rolling from there. And tell me about uh, your broadcasting in recent years as uh, as you've continued to, to be able to be one of uh, really a select few. Not that many people have the opportunity to broadcast uh, uh, baseball games at either the minor league or the major league level. Thank you. I do feel very fortunate. I've been lucky enough to do more than 2,000 professional baseball games, which is uh, an honor. I'm currently the broadcaster for the San Diego Padres Triple Eight team, the El Paso Chihuahuas. El Paso is in the Chihuahuan Desert. That's part of the origin of that name. I'm sure your listeners were wondering where Chihuahuas came from. Um, but we're very lucky. It's a big city. It's a great stadium. It's only 10 years old. It's right downtown. We have tremendous fan support. Players, umpires that come through. Uh, many have said this is the best Triple A ballpark there is. So, um, and we also have a lot of baseball history here much like you do in Binghamton. Uh, I know you and I speaking off the air about my new book of baseball stories, and it has a handful from Binghamton. And to me, that's what's so enjoyable about broadcasting here. Also, you know, a place like what you have with the Rumble Ponies, you not only have that fun and great talent on a regular basis in the summer there in Binghamton, but also deep history. I found some stories for the book that go back to the early 1900s. Well, and that includes the uh, the bingos back then, and then later the triplets who uh, uh, played for over half a century. We had a a, a professional baseball drought for um, basically from August 1968 till April of 1992, I believe, when our our new stadium opened downtown, and we had many seasons with the B Mets, Binghamton Mets, and then. Now, in, in recent years, the the Rumble Ponies, and I I just think every time I go to a game, I just um I feel fortunate that a town the size of Binghamton is still able to have this opportunity in the spring and summer months because many cities just don't have that opportunity anymore, especially with some of the uh, the changes that were made a few years ago with minor league baseball in the United States. Yeah, I 
I think you're absolutely right. And it shows a lot about Binghamton's fan support, the fact that they do continue to have a double-A Eastern League team. In 2021, uh, there were a group of 40 minor league teams that lost their major league affiliation. The good news is, in those cities, they still have professional baseball. It's just independent of major league baseball. They're not uh, tied directly to a major league organization. And I think that's what MLB's goal was, to keep baseball of some kind in those ballparks. And I think, luckily, for the most part, that has happened. Well, we uh, we had a, a bit of a scare for a time here. I, I know it took the work of our elected officials, uh, local, state, and even federal elected officials, and and many say even the change of ownership with the Bingham or with the New York Mets organization, or else it it was at one point it seemed very likely that that Binghamton was was not going to still have the same level of baseball, Double A baseball that that we've enjoyed here. Uh, downtown since the early 90s. I know you have one specific thing that you can share with us about something that occurred with the triplets going back to 1964. And that seems appropriate as as so many of the people here in Binghamton and Johnson City and across the, the region are uh, showing up where Johnson Field was. Tell me about uh, what occurred back in the, the mid-60s. Yeah, this was in 1964. I found this story for my new book. It's Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. And this story is in there. In 1964, the Binghamton triplets had a left fielder, John May, and he had a new version of the hidden ball trick. He put a ball in his pocket, took the field, and when an Auburn batter hit one over the fence, May pulled out the baseball that he had stashed in his pocket and pretended that he had caught the ball. And the umpires believed it. Lights were more dim back then. They honestly thought this guy caught the ball, even though the ball actually went soaring over the fence. Auburn, understandably, argued this as they saw the ball go over the fence. It led to a 15-minute argument. And finally, the umpires went behind the left field wall, and there was a kid back there with the ball. And they asked the kid for his story. He said it came flying over the fence moments ago. And they actually used that kid's testimony to say, okay, we're reversing this call and we're giving the Auburn batter a home run. That's interesting. I'm looking at a a story about that in, in the Binghamton Press going back to 1964 and, and mentioning that uh, the hidden ball hanky-panky that uh, that was pulled. And it's, it's funny that, that things like that um, are... In the grand scheme of things, they're they're sort of minor and trivial, and yet they're the type of things that uh, actually, in the long run, become memorable. The fact that we're talking about uh, an episode that happened, I believe, in June of 1964, is is amazing. And and who knows how many people were actually at the game to witness that? But it's it's still nice that we have that ability to uh, uh, recall these things uh, in our past, as especially for true baseball fans. I totally agree. To me, my favorite part about baseball is the stories, and there are more baseball stories than any other sport. I think the reason for that is the total number of games. You know, in researching this book, minor league baseball began in 1876, and you think about, you know, these days, Binghamton plays more than 130 games a year. And just think about how many cities have had baseball and then more than 100 games a year in all of those cities in most of those years, just how many total games there have been. So the total 
opportunities for chaos like that uh, becomes more possible in baseball than any other sport. Um, you'll like this one, Bob. In the early 1900s, there was a New York State League umpire, John Conroy, and he ejected Binghamton's manager, Jack Calhoun. This is the Bingo's manager. He ejected him because Calhoun made a joke about the umpire's hair. Leave the umpire's hair alone. <laughs> you might be able to get away with that, say, if you're on trial and you want to talk about the judges here, but don't, don't in baseball <laughs> talk, talk about the umpires here because there will be, uh, there will be consequences. <laughs> That's right. And also what I found is that I think there's a perception sometimes that in the early 1900s, baseball was gentlemanly and it was polite and it was respectful. It's absolutely not true. It was a wild time. For example, in 1903, Bill Clem was umpiring a game in Binghamton, and the bingo's owner, after Clem made a bad call, locked him out of the ballpark during the game. And Clem had the last laugh. He issued a forfeit loss to Binghamton from the parking lot in 1903. Uh, Clem, of course, went on to be in the Hall of Fame uh, up near you in Cooperstown. He's one of the all-time great umpires. Have you ever been to Cooperstown? Yes. In fact, for this book, I went to the Baseball Hall of Fame library. And what was great about that is not only is the library staff helpful, but if you tell them what you're looking to do and you put in a request, they actually have the books ready for you. So when flipping through minor league archives, uh, I put on the surgical medical gloves because you're flipping through these publications that in some cases are 100 years old. And that's when you know you're really looking through some sacred documents when they make you put on gloves. But the Baseball Hall of Fame library staff is so helpful. The museum, of course, is great. The plaque gallery is its most famous part. But there's the library there, which was great to research a baseball book like mine. Um, I wanted to have current stories in there, but also dip back into the early 1900s like we're talking about. We're speaking with minor league baseball broadcaster Tim Haggerty, who is joining us from El Paso, Texas, We're talking about his new book, Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. And, Tim, I just received uh, a photo and a note from my long team, a long-time colleague, Roger Neal, who is in Johnson City at the uh, the ceremony at the Senior Center as they look back on 40 years with the Senior Center and also celebrating the history of Johnson Field. And he uh, has just sent a picture uh, and says there's a, a large crowd gathering for that uh, special ceremony that is uh, getting underway right now. So it's, it's nice that as they celebrate minor league baseball in Binghamton, we are able to celebrate in our own way with some of the um, the interesting things that have happened even here in Binghamton. And I know you do have uh, uh, some more recent memories about Binghamton minor league baseball. Yeah, I love this story. You probably, I'm guessing, even uh, talked about this at the time. But in 2016, Binghamton Rumble Ponies fan Marion O'Connor passed away. And to the surprise of the team, in her will, she left $195,000 as a stadium donation. And she marked it for stadium improvements. And it was a remarkable story that got national attention because the team did not know this was coming. They knew Marion as a loyal fan of the team. Uh, but what a gesture. And to me, that shows the passion that your city has for the team, that uh, this woman would put that much money as a donation to her beloved team.
it does uh, really, really uh, speak volumes that people who love baseball uh, really love it. I mean, it's part of their their lives. I have a friend who has been to every major league ballpark, uh, and every time a new place opens, is excited to develop plans to go there and you know when one closes or if one's scheduled to close try to get um, to that place one last time usually to watch uh, the Red Sox play as it turns out and uh, interestingly her first first baseball game ever was right here in Binghamton watching the B Mets that's how she got started so and that wasn't that long ago till she um you know, really began embarking on on a, a, a journey, and she's even written a book about her uh, baseball adventures at, at so many major league ballparks. So once once you get the bug, it's hard to ever lose it. Yeah, I love that story, and especially the fact that it was the Binghamton Mets that introduced her to it. Uh, there are stories across minor league baseball of when a new minor league team arrives that the little league signups sometimes double; they go up so quickly. Because all of a sudden that becomes a baseball city. That happened here in El Paso when the Chihuahuas arrived a decade ago. And I, I think that's what I tried to capture in the book as well. We have a lot of illustrations to go along with these funny, crazy stories. And the thing I love about baseball is uh, the other day I got a message about a young eight year old kid that is loving reading, flipping through my book and seeing the illustrations. But then also I uh, got a message from an older gentleman who enjoyed flipping it through and reading the book. And I think that applies to baseball. You go to a game in Binghamton, it's really one of the few things in life, if you think about it, that baseball, people that are young, people that are old, people that really have all sorts of backgrounds are drawn to it. There aren't TV shows or movies like that. Uh, but baseball really has such a diverse set of fans. One of the things that is also special about minor league teams, whether it's the El Paso Chihuahuas or the Binghamton Rumble Ponies or the Savannah Bananas, the fact that uh, the the special nicknames and the logos and the branding that all all becomes part of it as as well. I'm looking at the the logo for the El Paso team and and you've I'm sure seen the logo for our Rumble Ponies and the Savannah Bananas and so many I mean uh, Akron Rubber Ducks and uh, you know you could run down the whole list of minor league teams and and how they're allowed to develop a a very special unique personality that that appeals certainly to the people in their town but in some cases people across the country Absolutely, and Binghamton's an example of another trend that's happened lately where they play uh, just a handful of games a year as a different team name. Of course, uh, I think it was around 2015-ish when the uh, Rumble Ponies name was introduced, and there was a series of Name the Team finalists, and one of them was the Binghamton Stud Muffins, a carousel horse reference. And Binghamton in 2019 played one game as the Stud Muffins with a new jersey and a new hat and it became a merchandise opportunity to sell some stud muffin hats as well and play basically what if what if this became the team name and this has become a popular thing in minor league baseball uh, the vermont lake monsters in 2018 played a game as the maple kings and what it did was 
let everyone know across the country that Vermont is known for its maple syrup. People like you close to Vermont know that, but somebody in California might not. So uh, that's what I liked about the Binghamton stud muffins. I didn't really know what that phrase meant, and apparently it connects to the carousel horses that are from your region. And I'm looking at a story that the New York Times did, and this is this certainly was, I'm sure, what the owner at the time uh was hoping to get not just regional but uh, national attention, and it happened in May of 2016 as the Name the Team contest was uh, reaching its conclusion. There's a, a photo that the Times ran, and you've got uh, players with the uh, the different potential names, bullheads, gobblers, rocking horses, rumble ponies, stud muffins, and timber jockeys, and... According to this story in the Times, 1,500 ideas were received, and I know they had a big ceremony, I believe, at a Binghamton school when they finally announced that Rumble Ponies was the the ultimate choice of of the new team, the new nickname. And uh, it generated a lot of um, excitement. Some people, I will say, I'll concede, some people... Uh, are disappointed that they're no longer called the Binghamton Mets. I mean, just to the north here, right. uh, another Mets affiliate, Triple uh, A affiliate, uh, is still known as the Mets, Syracuse Mets. But uh, indeed, the since the the team has been renamed, I would submit to you a, a lot more people from outside the Greater Binghamton area are are familiar with our minor league team. I would agree with that, and. I completely understand somebody that wanted to keep the name Mets. The thing I like about those finalists is that all of them do have a connection to the city. Uh, I think what some critics should at least recognize is that when these teams do this, they're not just pulling wild names out of a hat, although the list might make it seem that way. Uh, these are names that connect to the community. Here in El Paso, the finalists did the same thing. Uh, one of the finalists for the team name was Desert Gators, and we're here in the desert. How could there be a gator? But evidently there were very famous um, alligators in a downtown El Paso park decades ago that became something that people would come out and see. So it was an ode to that. Turns out that did not become the team name, but what I mean is these wild, wacky names, in addition to selling merchandise, do have some historical context, which I like. And it's always nice I think as as a broadcaster, if if we're either listening to uh, a game live here on WNBF, uh, to hear the Rumble Ponies taking on the Rubber Ducks or the Yard Goats, uh, these <laughs> team names are are um, amusing, and yeah, the fact is they they convey something very special. One of the things that we do like here in Binghamton, and one of our our uh, local. Uh, specialties, food specialties is a marinated meat sandwich called Speedies. And so every so often, our team will take the play, the field and they'll play as the Binghamton Speedies. And there's even a line of merchandise for that. A lot of people have uh, gone to the clubhouse store at the stadium at our Marabado Stadium downtown to uh, get merchandise, whether for themselves or maybe for friends out of town who still have um, great memories about about enjoying speedies here in Binghamton and Endicott. Wow, great story. Yeah, I'd never heard that, and uh, I'll have to check out that speedies gear. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say this, 
I, I know you've not yet had a chance to bing uh, to visit Binghamton, but if at some point in your travels you have an opportunity to visit the Binghamton area, maybe during baseball season, uh, I'll treat you to uh, a speedy either at a Rumble Ponies game or at one of our local speedy restaurants, and uh, I think you'll love it. I appreciate that. Um, I'll take you up on that, Bob. Yeah, I've been to Cooperstown many times, including to research for my new book, and uh, I've never been to Binghamton's ballpark. I would like to, though. It's beautiful. And they've made a lot of improvements over the last couple of years, and and still some additional improvements and enhancements are, are planned over the next several months. Tim Haggerty, it's been a pleasure talking with you about minor league baseball and your latest book, Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. I'm sure people know how to uh, obtain your book. And I think just based on our, our conversation, there's a lot of fascinating reading for baseball fans. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It has a lot of great illustrations as well, and I think people would like it. Wish you the best. Hope to see you in Binghamton sometime soon. Thank you, Bob. I enjoy being on. Thanks. We're live and local on a Thursday morning. You're listening to Binghamton Now. News Radio, WNBF. From the Galt Auto Studios, this is WNBF News Radio AM 1290. Also available at 92.1 FM. Reserve your new Toyota at Galt Toyota. Hi. WNBF 1036 with Bob Joseph, 607-772-1290. Another lockdown warning has been issued by the city of Binghamton. A couple of residential buildings on the north side could be locked down if the owners don't do something. Do something in the next few weeks. Uh, the owners of the houses at 3 and 5 Sturgis Street have been directed to take some action, come up with a plan. And I'm guessing the neighbors are happy. Last time I was in the neighborhood was uh, a few weeks ago when uh, the Police had to shut down Sturgis Street off Shenango Street because of a reported shooting. That was September 15th. Uh, Police were interviewing a lot of people. Uh, One guy wound up being charged because they found an assault rifle. He said it was an AK-47. So what is a guy 
on Sturgis Street doing with an AK-47 assault rifle and two loaded magazines. So maybe, maybe now is a good time for the people who are bringing in their assault rifles to Binghamton to knock it off. Unless they have their assault rifles for a legitimate purpose. I didn't have a chance to talk to the guy who was charged with weapon possession. Unfortunately, he was not available at that time for me to ask him a few questions. But I have to say, I'm not sure he had a real real good reason for having an AK that afternoon in September on Sturgis Street. Just my thought. You can see more about the story, about the lockdown warnings on our website, WNBF.com. It's 1038. Good morning. You're on the air. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? Well, hello there. It's John from Binghamton. Hey, hey, hey. Good morning. Uh, I didn't call to talk about it, but I'll, I'll answer your question. Uh, I believe the gentleman with the AK-47s probably with a Sheriff Akshar's militia and with standing firm with Paul Battisti because it's very dangerous in Binghamton. And, uh, you know, uh, the citizens have to be armed to protect themselves. You know, sometimes very, very I wonder, John, sometimes I wonder if I'm the only one on the streets of Binghamton who, who has no no gun and no knife and not even any pepper spray or not even a stun gun all you've seen me i'm i'm out on, I, on some of the means meaner streets of binghamton and i'm armed with this notebook this cheap pen and uh this phone made in vietnam that's all i have uh the way i understood it is the cowboy that used to go up and down court street left you his six guns any truth to that Sadly, John, that's not true. <laughs> I can, I can say right here and now, thank you actually for, for asking that question directly because I, I believe, I believe rumors have circulated to that effect, but no, no, uh, our, our dearly departed friend did not leave that to me. Okay, Bob. So, uh, Tuesday, I went on a tour, a guided tour of the IM3 New York, so called, Gigafactory, and uh, was two groups of people, uh, a few from the university, but uh, a lot of people that came in for this green energy conference were there, all nice folks, and uh, we got the, the tour, the grand tour of the IM3 New York Gigafactory. And what were your impressions? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, well, let me just, we put some coats on, white and blue coats. It was the white coats versus the blue coats. And, uh, you know, people were tremendous there. Uh, we walked in, and uh, what I, I'll tell you exactly what I saw. We were taken to what is a, first to a dry room that has like a, uh, a radio studio control room window glass in it. And uh, I observed uh, one person working at a machine. And then as we got a little farther into the building, I observed two other people working at a machine. Uh, 
a supervisor, a guy with sort of a button-down shirt, came in from time to time. Now, this is a huge, huge part of the factory. So uh, what I was struck with is that it's very sparse and that, you you know, it's not like Universal Instruments or IBM. You know, you're not working on top of anybody, that's for sure. But there was three workers in the dry room. Uh, there was the gentleman that led us in, that's four. There was three tour guide supervisors, uh, that's seven. Now, on the way out, there was some people, looked like they were rolling up copper, and there was two people there. So this was after 5 o'clock, Bob, so I assume the first shift was done for the day. But the commentary, I guess some of the equipment that was bought in North Carolina uh, doesn't do what they wanted to do, which is, I guess, coat both sides of the uh, battery cell. So they're getting another uh, another machine. They've ordered another machine. Uh, what I was struck by is there doesn't seem to be much uh, product going out. Uh, I looked at the doors and what I assume were half-refrigerator-sized uh, pallets. And uh, uh, if that was the outgoing, then there isn't much stuff there. There was a box of batteries. And, you know, these things are like a VCR tape or a, a big compact disc. You've seen the pictures of them. And uh, there was uh, perhaps 30 or 40 batteries. Now, what I was what I thought I was going to see is this. I thought I was going to see a battery hooked up to something, a TV, a radio, uh, 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 you know, some. I thought I was going to see a battery that was in a device that the battery was powering, you know, which is standard, you know, like World's Fair or. Right. You know, where, where, right. You to know. have yeah, something yeah, to, to dazzle. I, I would think that you would hook it up to, I, well, yeah, preferably a transistor radio hooked up to AM 1290. That would have been a crowd pleaser. But on the other hand, they didn't have to do that because they, they probably knew I wasn't going to be there. But probably if if I was going to be there, we, they would have had a battery hooked up to a radio listening to uh, the station. And one gentleman, it's funny. Now, I didn't, I just exchanged pleasantries. I was... Uh, the oldest person there and probably the person with the lowest IQ. But uh, an engineer did, did talk to me, and he said after the tour, he said, well, what I've seen so far, I, and I don't know who he was. I, he says, I'm going to report back, and I don't know who he was going to report back, because these are people from all over the country. Uh, he says that there's nothing really going on here. There was some questions. It was hard to hear because, uh, you know, that's a big building and there's fans going. But I did hear uh, that it was going to be three years for this or that uh, and that they were going to recycle things there. Uh, but it, it really seemed more like a small batch factory uh, that's uh, just there because of the research grants. It, it, it doesn't seem, uh, and it reminded me of something, Bob, uh, when I was a little kid. In the 50s, there were the sh uh, one very big shirt shop, men's shirt shop on Times Square, and they, they were a chain. 
and they had all these boxes. They had shirts in the window and shirts in a counter, and then they had these boxes up to the ceiling, big, big place. And then later on when the, the founders passed or when one of them passed, the story was told that they didn't have a lot of inventory, but they had these empty shirt boxes to convince the public that they were a big, big uh, purveyor of men's shirts. I got the same feeling with IM3. Uh, but it's, uh, and my, and, and then, then there was stuff that there were people working there for a half a shift, but in no way, no how is this going to be the, anywhere near uh, the biggest, uh, uh, the employment numbers that they were touting. Well, no way. Well, maybe not for the next two or three or even five years, but aren't they in it for the the long run? Well, what's the competition like? That's the Well, that's true. I mean, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are now in the battery game in the United States and, and in many other countries. So, I would say the competition is going to be fierce, and the I would think the hope of of the people for this project is even in the face of fierce competition, there will be uh, very very high demand, especially toward the end of this decade, as most, if not all, uh, global automakers shift over to electric vehicles. So. See what happens. I appreciate your uh, your sizing up for me. Yes, thank you, Bob. Thanks. It's the report from Endicott making contemporary news. I was unable to uh, to make it. I, I've not been inside the uh, the plant yet. One of these days, though, maybe I'll get a special tour if I make a special request. It's Bob Joseph live for you Thursday, 92.1 FM, 1290 AM, streaming at WNBF.com. Indeed, you are. 1050 WNBF, WNBF.com. <laughs> and it just never ends. The, um, the excitement, the excitement that is our litigious society. The Flash, apparently official, Sidney Powell, the attorney who aided former guy's bid to subvert the election pleads guilty. This is a story just posted on Politico.com. Former attorney for the former guy who was at the center of his effort to subvert the 2020 election has reached a plea deal and will cooperate with Georgia prosecutors in the racketeering case against Trump and many, I mean, against the former guy and many of his allies. Sidney Powell who advised the former president during the final frantic weeks of his bid to remain in power despite losing the election, pleaded guilty today to six misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties. She is the first 
person, the first member of the former guy's close advisors to admit to crimes related to the 2020 election. More details coming up from Georgia on News Radio WNBF. Sydney Powell, a plea deal. Ten fifty-five with Bob Joseph on WNBF. Well, a story I'm just learning about right now. Uh, four uh, college seniors were fatally mowed down by an out-of-control BMW driver in Malibu. This is the story as posted on the New York Post website. The students were killed by the out-of-control BMW driver. I don't know that the driver killed them. The car apparently struck them as they walked along the PCH in Malibu. The four women were struck when a guy lost control of the BMW on a notoriously treacherous stretch of the iconic highway. The story says the guy was driving, he was speeding as he drove westbound on the highway in the vehicle when he lost control, smashed into several parked vehicles, and then crashed into a group of young women who were walking in the area. Witnesses said the driver got out of the vehicle unharmed and was tackled to the ground by several people. WNBF. Where news breaks first. News Radio 1290 WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF News. Increasing clouds today, high near 64. Mostly cloudy tonight, low around 53. Mostly cloudy Friday with a chance of showers, high near 63. Around 12.39 p.m. Wednesday, Endicott Police received the report of a robbery at Visions Federal Credit Union. Endicott police were on the scene within two minutes, but the suspect had already fled on foot. The investigation revealed that no proceeds were obtained during the attempted robbery and no weapon was displayed. Investigation into the matter led to the arrest of Rashid Crawford of Binghamton for attempted robbery in the third degree, a Class E felony. Crawford was processed at the Endicott Police Department and transported to the Broome County Centralized Arraignment Part to be held pending arraignment. The investigation is continuing, and anyone with information is asked to call the Endicott Police Department Detective Division. Two residential buildings may be shut down by the city of Binghamton because of criminal activity and disturbances. The owners of houses at 3 and 5 Sturgis Street have been ordered to take action to address the problems associated with the properties. According to Mayor Jared Cram, Isaac Anzarut, Alan Anzarut and Craig Spencer have been sent lockdown letters indicated the properties have been a public nuisance. Graham said police were called to 3 Sturgis Street in September for a report of a man with an AK-47 assault rifle. A man was charged with weapons, weapons possession after police found a rifle and two loaded magazines when they searched the two-family house. A man was shot in the chest last February at the single-family residence at 5 Sturgis Street. 
A Binghamton man was charged with attempted murder in that incident. The mayor said the owners of the properties will have 10 days to meet with city officials to discuss the trouble that's occurred. If the owners don't submit corrective action plans, the city could go to court to obtain an order to lock down the properties for up to one year. The Binghamton Planning Commission has authorized the conversion of a downtown office tower into a residential complex. Developer James Slocum had sought a special use permit for the proposed project at the Center Plaza building at Shenangle and Henry Streets. The plan approved by the commission would permit 63 apartments with a total of 87 bedrooms to be established in the upper portion of the eight-story office building. The project calls for seven more dwelling units and seven more bedrooms than what was outlined by Slocum at a September planning commission meeting. Slocum had sought permission to include a gym in the basement of the building, but that use is not allowed under city regulations. Although the building's interior will be reconfigured for the planned apartments, the developer has said the exterior of the structure won't be changed. Slocum, who acquired the property over the summer, told WNBF News on Wednesday that he is now working to finalize plans for the project. Pennsylvania State Police in Tawanda reported a motor vehicle crash on Springfield Road in Springfield Township, Bradford County. Upon arriving at the scene, troopers observed a Subaru Outback had been traveling east on Springfield Road when the operator failed to negotiate a left-hand curve. The vehicle traveled off the roadway and struck a tree. The operator of the vehicle, Shirley Mancuso-Zatel, was pronounced deceased at the scene by the Bradford County Coroner's Office. New York State Governor Kathy Hochul arrived in Israel for a trip intended to show support for the country during its war with Hamas. The Democratic governor landed around 5.40 p.m. Wednesday with a group of state police officers and top aides. She later met with victims of the Hamas attack and families of hostages, as well as as volunteers and staff at a food pantry before heading to Jerusalem to stay overnight. Hoku said a trip was meant to be a gesture of solidarity and support for Israel. The war that began on October 7th has become the deadliest of five Gaza wars for both sides. And Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro's office says he'll sign budget-related legislation to boost Medicaid subsidies for hospitals and ambulance services, provisions struck in a wider, months-long stalemate. The bill passed the House on Wednesday by a vote of 199 to 4 and heads to Shapiro's desk. Under the bill, lawmakers reauthorized an assessment on hospitals that is expected to draw down roughly $1.4 billion in matching federal Medicaid dollars this year. It then redistributes the money to favor hospitals that treat higher proportions of Medicaid enrollees. Meanwhile, the bill boosts Medicaid reimbursements for ambulance services by a projected $126 million a year in federal and state aid. The reimbursement includes ground and air transportation. That's a look at news. For updates on local news, weather, sports, and features, open up the WNBF app and online at WNBF.com. This is News Radio 1290 WNBF. I'm Joseph. Another hour of Binghamton Now on WNBF.
7721290 Feel free to dial in and win up to 30 seconds of uninterrupted airtime and maybe longer maybe longer News continues to break all over the place all over the news just never stops <laughs> Sydney Powell bye guilty ah uh, what, what must it be to make a plea you know, Sydney Powell cops a plea in the Georgia election probe so for those of us who enjoy dominoes here they go here they go again also, in the wide world of politics, we have received late word from the Capitol via the Washington Post website. Jim Jordan will not seek an additional speaker vote today, allowing the chamber instead to give Patrick McHenry, the uh, temporary speaker, more powers. And this is probably to be expected. People were getting fed up with being strong-armed and threatened. Uh, if you don't vote for Jim Jordan, the world-famous member of Congress from Ohio, if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. Well, even loyal Republicans did not take kindly to that sort of um, approach. So again, uh, Washington Post reporting, there will not be an additional speaker vote today. So does that mean Jim Jordan will never become speaker? Who knows? Who knows? I'm not in the prediction business. He could he could become speaker of that house. So time will tell. Time only time will tell. What a mess. What a mess they've made of their house. They should be uh they should be governing. They shouldn't be going through the the uh, antics. You know, antics are good. Antics are good on talk radio, or antics might be good on cable TV or late night comedy shows. Antics are not good. The Congress of the United States and on TV now they keep showing the mugshot of Sidney Powell from the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. Remember that day when the Fulton County Sheriff's Office was releasing all the mug shots? I lost track. Though it, I think the one, didn't they put out a mug shot of, of Rudy? Sidney Powell? Some of the mug shots they put out. I mean, it's, I don't know who's to blame. Uh, at least the first one or two mug shots from the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. Oh, now they're... And they're running all the mugshots on TV. 
at least briefly. Then they took it down because they, they didn't want to scare the kids. But I noticed at least the first uh, one or two mug shots from that sheriff's office, the lighting was bad. So it made everybody look like a villain. So some of the first people in for the mug shots that day probably are upset because the pictures don't do them justice. I mean, mug shots I saw, some people actually look pretty good. Uh, who was the one? I think she had one of those grins. You know what I mean? The grinning mug shot. But uh, I commend... Command the Fulton County Sheriff's Office for at least uh, releasing the mugshots, even though the quality left something to be desired. At least they were released on a timely basis. What else is going on? Mm-mm-mm. Oh, something from Tom DiNapoli's office. What else? Oh, wait. Hold on. Oh. <laughs> Ah, interesting. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm just planning my weekend while being on the air. I know that's that's really not supposed to happen, but, you know, I'm very busy, so sometimes I I have to work out my schedule while I'm doing the program, too. So I regret. I regret that I'm multitasking. Well... Trying to figure out how to fit all these things into this coming weekend. It's 1116 at News Radio WNBF where the news continues to break fast and furiously. And we'll uh, keep you posted. Oh, here's something from Joe Mahoney. Tip Mahoney uh, says a New York judicial watchdog panel has decided that uh, the state court is accepting a ruling about a town justice. The Whitehall Town and Village Court Justice Robert Pertorti will be booted from the bench for unjustifiably pointing a loaded handgun at a defendant in court, then repeatedly bragging about it publicly. Racism alleged. I heard about a judge around here who did something With a gun once in the courtroom. And I, I can't remember if anything ever happened to that judge. It seemed to me, this is just my theory about courts in the United States and guns. Judges should not be waving guns around or even handling guns in their courtroom. Well, court is in session. And again, I know there will be people who beg to differ and say, well, when it comes to the court, the judge is ultimately in charge. The judge ultimately holds 100% authority in his or her courtroom, and I understand that, but I still maintain that in this era where sometimes, I was going to say accidents happen, I don't call them accidents, where sometimes guns somehow inadvertently go off and people get hurt or killed, I don't think there's uh, much of an excuse for judges to be showing their weapons in court unless unless it's 
a situation where they they need to defend themselves or others in the court. If there's a, a life or death situation and a judge has access to a weapon, I suppose there's legal justification for that. Otherwise, keep your gun out of the courtroom. That's why we have court officers. They're providing the security. Judges need not wave guns around. In this one particular case in the town of Whitehall, where the guy unjustifiably, not the guy, the justice, unjustifiably pointed a loaded handgun at a defendant and then repeatedly bragged about it publicly, I don't really see how you could justify that. 1119 WNBF, let's take a phone call. Hi, you're on the air. What's your first name? Where are you calling from? Hi, Joan from Binghamton. Uh, Actually, I should say bingo, but, you know, every once in a while I slip up. So what's on your mind? Well, uh, you, uh, oh, look at that. You made the comment that, uh, you know, the Republicans... uh, can't agree on anything and you know that uh, coercion was being used and what popped into my brain right away was is how do you get every house democrat to vote exactly the same if you don't use coercion that's the biggest example of coercion you could ever see everybody never agrees on every on everything well, threatening people's lives, I think, is just a tad overline. Or trying to intimidate uh, a lawmaker's wife, I, I, I say that's taken it just a step too far. Well, you know, you have uh, that was done by a member of Congress, or that was done by a uh, citizen. I don't know. I don't know all the details. Whether it was done oh, by a citizen, you don't know the details, huh? No. No, and, wow. and I'll I'll look up the details if I care to at some point. The bottom line is Jim so you're Jordan that? Jim Jordan Jim Jordan at this point has not been elected speaker of the house. Right. Because he's lost votes. Ostensibly well, ostensibly because he and his supporters have behaved poorly. So we know we know some of the the members of Congress who changed their vote on the initial vote, I believe four Republicans voted against him, and I think on the latest one was it six. So he's losing ground because people in his own party are not amused by what's going on. They don't need they don't need to be threatened by Jim Jordan and his supporters. Well, what what, ki- what kind of a government does that? What I've heard is Jim uh, Jordan is the fellow that doesn't make deals, and the guy who was in there previously was the one who was making deals all over the place. He, you know, with Republicans, Democrats, whatever you want, and Jordan was the type of person who just doesn't make deals, and so that's, I think, primarily. Why he can't get because get, he doesn't want to give them everything they want. Yeah, well, then too bad he's not going to be speaker. Now, it says, so I see no evidence that Jim Jordan himself has threatened anyone, but his allies. So it says hardball tactics by Jim Jordan allies are backfiring. So he's losing ground, and that's why 
he called off today's planned vote. There was supposed to be a third vote today, but he called it off because he knows that if the vote was going to be held today, he would lose a third time. And usually, although not it turns out not in the House of Representatives, but most of the time in, in life, third strike, you're out. So he, well, he is going back to the drawing board. He's trying to figure out how on earth he could possibly get those few Republicans that he needs because he, he can't, he can't afford to lose these people. These, these people, and remember, if now if he comes back to him and says, well, I know I have a reputation of not making deals, but I'll, I'll make you a deal if you support me. It's, it's like a ring hollow. Who would believe him? How, I'll, how I'll, do you? How I'll do make you, a deal. How do you get every Democrat to vote for one person? What kind of deals did they have to make in order to do that? What kind of threats did they have to make to make them do that? That's the other question. Hey, that it's, was the it's not just one other question. There are lots of questions. There are a lot of questions why the Republicans can't unite behind one of their colleagues, whether because, it's Jim uh, Jordan the, or anyone else. Find that's someone. Half, that's because half of the Republicans are really Democrats. Let's face it. You know, I mean, if you want to talk about they have different opinions, and obviously some of them lean more Democrat than Republican. They got elected in Republican areas just because, you know, the other guy was, uh, you know, not something that most of the people wanted. And it's just like around here. I mean, uh, there's Republicans around here that, you know, hey, you know, do we do we think he's really a Republican? Well, for some things, he sort of is. Well, they're all Republicans. Who, who are you talking about around here? Who do you think, who is a registered Republican and was elected as a Republican, who do you think around here is not a real Republican? Uh you have to talk about all the different aspects of everything that they want. Well, you, to. Ma you made a reference. They're all Republicans. Everybody I know who's been elected around here as a Republican candidate, I know they're Republicans. I know. I see. I talk well, to them. That's just, that's just a label. Yes, just like anything, it's a label. Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, those are labels. But you are making some sort of assertion that there are some Republicans, even maybe a lot of Republicans around here, who were elected as members of the GOP and somehow they're not real Republicans. And I say name names. Prove it to me. Oh, well, the mayor of Binghamton, for one. Jared Cram. He's a lifelong Republican, as far as I know. And I look, I, I I've never asked him specifically, but I believe that probably from the moment he turned eighteen or whatever, I, I assume because his his father was a proud Republican and a county executive before that, a member of the county legislature. I surmise that Jared Graham has always been a Republican. Well, they can't even define what a woman is. What do you mean? What do you mean? Jared Cram? No, not Jared Cram. It's just that labeling things just uh, doesn't work. I mean, Oh, look. Every Republican, Jared Cram, Rich David, Richard Bucci, 
every Republican who's ever been elected here in Broome County, and when I say ever, I'd say over at least the last half century, they're all Republicans, not just in name only. They love the Republican Party, and they stand for it. Well, the Republican Party, you know, is not all Republican. <laughs> they, they, they a lot of times vote against it. They're doing it right now. Just think. They're causing problems in, in their own party right now. What do you think that is? Because they don't want somebody like Jim Jordan. Look at what Jim Jordan stands for. He stands for not accepting the results of the 2020 presidential election. No, he just stands for investigating certain areas where uh, rules during COVID were changed, not by legislatures, but by just some governor saying, oh, we're going to change the rules of voting. And he wants to impeach the Scranton guy. He wants to impeach President Joe Biden. There's well, that, Biden's too. got a whole pile of things. You've got that uh, laptop. You've got him. Joe Biden doesn't have a laptop. That's the subject of any scrutiny. Joe Biden's laptops are all secure, and none of Joe Biden's laptop information has been published yet by the New York Post. They haven't, but they've got emails. They've got all kinds of things, and, you know... They, Biden, Joe Biden is, um, he, he <laughs> and you saw him representing us in Israel. I couldn't believe that, you know, when he was talking to, uh, in, in Israel, you know, he was almost half asleep and he couldn't, couldn't even read his speech. He was losing parts of it and had to fill in with stories that he couldn't finish. And, and he was, I mean, and then the PLO even canceled on him and said, ah, I'm not talking to that guy. He wouldn't have met with the PLO. Well, that's where he was scheduled. It was, was scheduled. Was a- it was scheduled. But given what has transpired over the last 48 hours, he would not have met with the PLO, even even if they hadn't canceled out on him. It's just, I think the PLO canceled the meeting just to save face because they knew President Biden would not be meeting with them, even if it had previously been in the works. Well, Jordan canceled it. Uh, Egypt canceled it. He was going to meet with five or six Arab leaders, and they all canceled out. Yeah, given what happens with the the tragedy at the hospital with hundreds killed, there was no, there was absolutely was, was, there was, was there was absolutely as an excuse for everything. And there I, was absolutely no point. In fact, if he hadn't already been en route, I bet. I bet his whole trip to Israel would have been canceled. But he was already, if I'm not mistaken, either he was almost there or already at, on the ground when the hospital uh, explosion occurred. Right. Well, that's- well, he couldn't do anything about it. I mean, he, if he was already there or almost there, he couldn't turn around and say, I can't meet with anybody because that would be political suicide. So, of course, he met with Israeli leaders and he expressed his condemnation at those who have uh, committed terroristic acts. And then he had to go home. He'll address the nation and the world coming up tonight at 8 p.m. That's coming up in eight and a half hours. Well, that's true. That's true. And he'll probably be half asleep for that one, too. Well, I'm going to tune in and find out. I. It seems to me that some people don't think he can do anything right. 
And yet he is the commander in chief. It's 11.30. I'm Bob Joseph. This is Binghamton Now. From the Galt Auto Studios, this is WNBF News Radio AM 1290. Also available at 92.1 FM. We're still saving the Southern Tier money at Galt Toyota. the phones we go james in binghamton you're on the air you know you have to think about when you hear like those campy one-hit wonders like what it was like for like the producers in the studio when they finally landed on it like did they know they were creating some sort of earworm that would just continue on and on and on and i don't know that's what that's what that song made me think of. <laughs> there are um, a lot of songs like that that for whatever reason wound up wound up captivating america and the world sometimes for for weeks or even months and then the uh the people responsible just slithered back into obscurity yeah uh it was kind of interesting hearing joan like complain about like biden like oh i've got to like stop for a second or find my spot in my speech again after listening to her like logic salad there for the last five minutes i'm not quite sure but did i understand what she's saying correctly that that in her frame of reference, the only way that consensus can be garnered is through, like, threats and co- coercion. Uh, yeah, I think uh, my sense was threats, coercion, intimidation, and yeah, and yeah, generally and behaving that, boorishly is, is the way to get things yeah, done. Yeah, that's pretty – those are hallmarks of authoritarian fascism right there. So, uh, yeah, no wonder. Well, it sounds no like the type of thing that, that might have been employed maybe in the 40s and 50s uh, in – Say yeah. Endicott yeah, or whatever. Boss, I mean, you know, some, that's some that's some boss tweed level <laughs> stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. You um, you you do what we want you to do, or else. Well, it made me think. The reason I'm calling because, uh, like, I don't feel the need to comment on this circus because it seems to be playing out so deliciously on its own. Um, but you know, it reminded me of an old political science phrase that I don't think applies anymore. And you might remember this one from the old timey days. It goes. Um, and it would usually come on the heels uh, of Democrats or the left, like, wringing their hands over. I thought we had the momentum. How come we came up short in this election? Blah, 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 blah. And there's this old phrase that goes something like, uh, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line, right? Um, where you would have entire caucuses or the entire, like, Republican side of the party, whether it be um, uh, you know, where they stood on the abortion issue and stuff, they'd still, like, form coalitions to, to get things done and the Democrats would flail around because some, you know, bleeding heart X can't deal with moderate business friendly Y over here. And, you know, it'd turn into a circus. And now I think that you have an entire party that's been taken over uh, the Republican one by nothing more than uh, feeling and uh, projecting one's insecurities and fears and latent, if not outright bigotries on others you know, you've got this whole frothy mess and you realize that there is no consensus anymore because, you know, it's like Barry Goldwater called that stuff, you know, 40 years ago. And he was the arch conservative, you know. So um, I think that's what's happening now is you've got you've got a Republicans who are unable to fall in line and you have Democrats sitting over there saying, 
what if we just all vote for Hakeem Jeffries? Like we look pretty unified, and it's just a slow <laughs> drip, and they just just keep doing it, just keep well, slow they, dripping. You bring I, up I Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, yeah, I, even even people who don't know that much about Hakeem Jeffries right now are probably thinking, yeah, he, he would he man, been a Rockefeller Republican probably fifty years ago, more or less. <laughs> I mean, he's not like he's not the extreme. I guarantee you. If there was a fractious situation in the past, he probably wouldn't have a third of that caucus backing him. But uh, when people see that there's a shared goal and a shared need to, like, you know, just do basic things. You know? <laughs> well, and the thing, I mean, can, the, the thing is, I, I, I believe so much of this comes down to many traditional Republicans trying to essentially rescue their beloved party and, and get it out of uh, this, this terrible corner that uh, the former guy wound up painting the party into. I mean, this there is, now with trials underway, this is the opportunity for real Republicans, I think, to uh, find a way out and and get the party back on track. Well, what I couldn't understand was, and, uh, I mean, I get it. There's, and by the way, if she thinks that, like, they're all like, they don't, that there's fake, okay, if there's secret Democrats in the Republican Party, then why haven't they voted for Hakeem Jeffries? Because you know what Mark Molinaro could do right now? He could call Hakeem Jeffries and say, I want to be the chair of the, or I want to be like on these three committees next week. You know, and like, he could spend the next year bringing all the pork possible back to this district on a committee that would still have a majority of Republicans, because regardless of whoever the speaker is, they have the majority in the House. Uh, you know, but. Yeah, that's I, an I interesting point. It's, you know, at some point, you he know. Cherry Bowler, the chair of the science committee, and he was like from Schnegel, or like the central New York or yeah. something. I mean, like, you know. Yeah, I mean, and I long for the days of Sherwood Bowler, you know, who he, look, he was, I, I believe he was a loyal Republican, and yet he was also pragmatic, and and ultimately it seemed by most of the people in this part of New York State, very, very yeah, highly I mean, respected. Like, uh, the most New York Republican thing to do would go be go get all the money. So, like, bro, go, go get all the money. Yeah, <laughs> we, exactly. We we need I mean, you. Like, what yeah, are you doing? yeah. That's ultimately that's. And look, I don't I don't need to um, tell most of our listeners that's how. Uh, like uh, Congressman Flood in northeastern Pennsylvania, he may have been corrupt, but his constituents loved him because he brought home the bacon. That's what it's so, about. Bacon, okay. baby. Yes, yes, yes. Everything's but, better uh, with yeah, bacon. No, I, just, I had to call in because the way I hear this and see this all playing out, it just occurred, it just reminded me of that old phrase uh, where uh, Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. And this seems to be something where that whole that whole zeitgeist has been flipped completely at this point, I think. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you for the call. 1139 at WNBF. Martin in Binghamton, you're on the air. Yeah, hi, thanks. Um, yeah, and about Jim Jordan, um, 16 years, how many bills was he responsible for? Zero. Zero. There you go. There's an impressive <laughs> record. You know, so that's one yeah. thing. That's one thing Jim Jordan and I have in common. We're, we're both responsible uh, for uh, zero uh, bills in the House. Uh, maybe he can go back to um, designing uh, his suits. So, uh. <laughs> oh, I, I certainly. And again, maybe maybe my worldview is at odds with uh, the worldview of Jim Jordan, but I certainly wish him the best in his future endeavors. Although, 
doesn't look like he's ever going to be Speaker of the House. He had his chance, came mighty close, but I guess he blew it. And also, last thing about politics is that, you know, um, where we're at now is just really disgusting um, with, with these threats and the violence and everything else. And there's only one person that is that brought this to fruition, you know, and that started in 2016 when um, that former guy started running. We never had this this stuff and people getting um they're, you know, threatened in their wives and children and everything. It's just we're at a, we're at a, just a horrible state. But um, I wanted to, well, like I told you before, I want to talk about the um, about some miscellaneous things that I remember about the triplets and 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 uh, growing up. And um, that I give a shout out to the former um, announcer of the triplets, uh, my friend's father, Kenny Gilcrest. Um, and I started, I, I'm remiss that I started going to the Green Owl um, just a couple of years before it ended. Um, but my God, they had so many pictures in there. Of, uh, were you ever in there, Bob? Bob to, uh, I don't to think I was. I, I don't believe I ever ma- managed to make it in. Oh, it was just uh, littered with um, pictures, and had uh, Roosevelt came here one year and stuff. But just, it was just uh, um, a plethora of pictures and a history of the of the triplets. And um, I don't know if um, people remember that there was uh, the lady with the loud, loud cowbell that was always at the game. She lived uh, up around the corner here on Front Street over by the miniature golf course and uh, would load a bunch of us kids in there. She had an old um, station wagon, like with, the, with one of the seats facing the back, you know, and uh, but that was a lot of fun. And I'm talking like, you know, I'm 10, 11 years old, but some of the, the people, I never seen Whitey Ford pitch, but I remember um, seeing, you know, Mickey Scott, who I became good friends with when I was working with up at State Park, who ended up playing for four different major league teams and, you know, seeing Tom Trush. And then there was a, a shortstop with a, a very prolific name, Ozzy Chevaria. I don't know if people remember him. Um, and then, um, of course, uh, the highlight of my time there was a uh, Ken Harrelson who led the uh, Eastern League in home runs with 38 home runs, um, and was drafted by the Kansas City Athletics, who later became known as Ken Suitcase Harrelson, who um, you know of course was traded all over. And then I I don't know if he's still an announcer or not, but um, but he went on to be have a, a long. Uh, tenure as an announcer and about the rumble ponies um i went down to see max scherzer pitch two years ago and i he i saw him face one batter and after about the third pitch the guy put it on the railroad tracks and um he pitched last night and if i was still a gambling man i i certainly would have bet against him because he's uh, i think he's He's done. Um, he's, he's damaged goods, um, unlike um, Verlander still is. But but and he made a derogatory remark. He goes, I don't want to be. I still yeah. want to be a, a, yeah. a rumble pony. But he did end up rectifying that um, by taking everybody out to dinner. Yeah, you know, I, I I didn't like that remark, but I also understood what he was talking about in the context. Appreciate your call. Thank you for the baseball memories here in Binghamton on WNBF. It's 1144 Thursday morning with Bob Joseph.
WNBF 1147. Roger in Choconut, you're on the air. Oh, thank you, Bob. Good show. Um, thank you. I, I was just thinking that I think everybody could agree on the fact that you should not call up politicians and threaten them, period. Republicans, Democrats, independents, or whatever. Because that would be a um, political black eye, shall I say. Well, let's think about it this way. Knowing that a um, Democrat could call up and make the threat, knowing that everybody would immediately assume that it was a Republican, and that would be a Republican black eye. So everybody's assuming that Jim Jordan had, or one of his associates had something to do with it. I don't think that Jim Jordan or Hakeem Jeffries would ever support anything like that. So this could be somebody just trying to call, make a call, and stir the pot. So when we assume that Jordan had something to do with this, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. But it is what it is. But um, let's not assume that Jordan did this because I don't think there's anything in his history or Jeffrey's history or any other histories that they supported threatening uh, politicians. True. So, All right. Good I, point. You know? All right. No, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think Jim Jordan or anybody who's at that level in the house of representatives would ever uh, condone and in fact, he's actually condemned the the reported threats. So um, whether it was stuff that was done by potentially over enthusiastic or misguided supporters, or perhaps Democrats, or or even just troublemakers who aren't Democrat or Republican, we just don't know at this point. So I appreciate your call. Thank you. Thanks. Have a nice day. Thanks. Eleven forty nine. WNBF. Were you here? Voices of Reason, Monday through Friday, 9 to noon on Binghamton Now. Eleven fifty-three. now live to Johnson City, historian Jerry Smith is outside the Senior Center where the legendary and iconic Johnson Field, the ballpark, once stood. Morning, Jerry. Good morning, Bob. Yes, I'm standing next to Home Plate, uh, the historical marker on the exact location of Home Plate for Johnson Field. And a few feet away from me, next to the new digital sign, is the New York State historical marker denoting the location of Johnson Field. And we were honored today to have Mrs. Diana Munson, the widow of Thurman Munson, literally throw out the first ceremonial ball to her son, Mike Munson. Wow. Wow, this is, uh, this is a great day. And I know we spoke about this uh, several weeks ago when you were here about the yeah. uh, event that so many people have been looking forward to. Yeah, we had about 200 people show up for the event. So it's been a wonderful morning, and it represents the best of the history of our community. 
Well, I had an opportunity to pop over there yesterday morning when uh, there was a Johnson City Public Works official uh, working around the, the home plate area. In fact, the, the blacktop around the, the home plate where the, the marker is uh, was still warm. It was still, yeah. if I touched it, it would have been, been hot. They just put that down yesterday, and they were doing uh, all the finishing touches on, on Wednesday to get set for this morning's special ceremony. Yes, in fact, it's protected by four bollards that are going to have solar lights on each one, so it will be visible all day and all night in our community. And just so people uh, will appreciate this, the triplets played there at that spot, and some of the uh, uh, players who ultimately became big names with the Yankees, including Thurman Munson and Whitey Ford, that's where they that's where they started their baseball careers. Indeed, yep, and and so many others. We've got a large memorabilia collection inside the senior center for visitors to see over the next few days. Well, excellent, and I, I thank you, Jerry Smith. Also, I know Roger Neal's there, and I, I thank him for uh, setting this up and also sending a, a photo of the uh, ceremony from last hour. So uh, thank you, gentlemen, and um, just wish everybody well who's at the Johnson City Senior Center, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary. Indeed. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank Talk you. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Jerry Smith, our historian buddy, live at the old Johnson Field site in the village of Johnson City. And that is our program. We serve the community every day. I'll be back tomorrow morning from 9 to noon right here on News Radio WNBF. This is News Radio 1290 AM, WNBF Binghamton. Now on 92.1 FM, W221 EJ Binghamton, a town square media.